afternoon and welcome to Torch Online and to our first Book at Lunchtime event for this academic year. A discussion of Iconoclasm as Child's Play, written by Joe Mashenska. Book at Lunchtime is Torch's flagship event series, taking the form of pretty much weekly bite-sized discussions of books authored by colleagues in the humanities here in Oxford, with a range of commentators and questions from, especially in these strange times, all over the world. Please do take a look at our website and newsletter for the full programme for the coming term. My name is Wes Williams and I'm the new director here at Torch. Also on our very distinguished panel today are Alexandra Walsham, Kenneth Grosh, Matthew Beavis and Lorna Hudson, our chair today. In a moment, I'll hand over to Lorna, who will introduce the book and the other members of the panel. This will be followed by a brief reading by Joe of uh, elements of the book. Afterwards, our commentators will present their thoughts on Joe's work, coming at it from their particular disciplines. We'll then give him the chance to respond to some of the points raised before entering into what promises to be a fascinating discussion. The event will conclude the last 10 minutes or so with questions from you, the audience, which I hope you will send in in the Q&A chat box as soon as they occur to you, and I will help to moderate them towards the end. All that's left then for me to do now is to thank you all for coming and to introduce our chair. Lorna Hudson is the Merton Professor of English Literature and the Director of the Centre for Early Modern Studies here in Oxford. She was educated in San Francisco, Edinburgh and Oxford and has more or less repeated that itinerary in her career, having taught at Berkeley, St Andrews and now Oxford, where she's our Professor of English Literature, as I say. She's also a fellow of the British Academy and works on English Renaissance literature. She's written on usury and literature, on women's writing and representation, on poetics and forensic rhetoric, and most recently on the geopolitics of England's, quote, insular imagining in the 16th century. I'll hand over to you now, Lorna, uh, and disappear from your screens for a while. Thank you very much, Wes. Um, hello, everybody. I feel really privileged to be included in this distinguished interdisciplinary panel gathered to discuss Joe Mashenska's iconoclasm as child's play. The debate about the relationship of religious iconoclasm to the emergence of the autonomous artwork rages on. But Joe's book really transforms this debate by introducing the anarchic figure um, of the playing child, the anarchic and opaque figure. To discuss this stimulating proposition, we have the perfect panel, I think. We have an, uh, an expert in the effective forms of um, the English Reformation, an expert in literature and puppet theater, and an expert in uh, playful literary forms, uh, comedy and nonsense. So I'm going to introduce our, um, to Joe first and then our panel. And Joe will then, as Wes said, give a brief reading and comments from his book and then, uh, I'll ask a question and members of the panel will uh, ask questions and give their comments. So our author, uh, Dr. Joe Mashenska, is Associate Professor and Tutorial Fellow at University College here at Oxford. Joe grew up in Brighton and read English at Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge. He then went to Princeton initially as a visiting fellow, but stayed there to complete his PhD. After a spell at Trinity College, Cambridge, Joe joined the English faculty at Oxford in 2018, where um, I had the pleasure of teaching with him on the master's course. Joe is the author of Feeling Pleasures, um, Oxford 2014, and A Stain in the Blood uh, on the Life of Sir Kenelm Digby, 2017. And in 2019, Joe was awarded the Philip Leverhulme Prize. He's currently working on a book on Milton. Now, our first commentator is Professor Matthew Bevis, who's Professor of English Literature and a Tutorial Fellow at Keeble College, Oxford. Uh, Matt's books include The Art of Eloquence, Byron, Dickens, Tennyson, Joyce, and Comedy, a very short introduction, which explores comedy both as literary genre and what Matt calls funny business. He has written a book rather unexpectedly on uh, comedy in Wordsworth, entitled Wordsworth Fun, and he um, is currently writing about the author we perhaps most associate with child's play and nonsense, Edward Lear. 
Matt's um, forthcoming book, Knowing Edward Lear, has involved him in a lot of fun sounding collaborations with the BBC, the Natural History Museum and the Ashmolean. Uh, our second commentator um, is Professor Alexandra Walsham. Um, Alexandra Walsham is Professor of Modern History at Cambridge. She studied at the University of Melbourne before coming to Cambridge for her PhD, and she's taught at the universities of Exeter and Cambridge. Among her many marvelous books, I'd like to draw your attention to her magisterial, The Reformation of the Landscape, Religion, Identity and Memory in Early Modern England, which I feel is particularly pertinent to this discussion. This book won no less than three prizes, the Wilson Prize, an American Historical Association Prize and the Roland Bainton Prize. Professor Walsham was elected a fellow of the British Academy in 2009 and of the Australian Academy of the Humanities in 2013. She was appointed CBE for services to history in the Queen's Honours uh, 2017. We're also really delighted and privileged to have with us uh, Professor Kenneth Gross, who's Professor um, and Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of English at the University of Rochester. Kenneth Grosch's work ranges from Renaissance literature to romantic and modern poetry. In addition to uh, the very pertinent Spencerian poetics, idolatry, iconoclasm and magic from 1985, he has written on Shakespeare, numerous essays on lyric poetry, on the relation of literature and the visual arts, on metamorphosis and animation in literature, and uh, again, very pertinently for this discussion, on the strange shapes of puppet theater, traditional and experimental. So uh, there you have it, our panels of experts on icons, iconoclasm and funny business. Uh, and I will now uh, turn to Joe to ask him to read from his book and to um, make a few observations about it. Joe. Thank you very much, Lorna, for that introduction. And um, I'll try and read relatively briefly from the book. I want to hear from this wonderful panel, but I also do want to take a bit of extra time just to thank uh, them. Thank you all for, for, for um, being part of this event. I think we all sort of agree that one of the very few positives to come out of this dreadful wider situation in which we find ourselves is that we can sort of put together gatherings like this in ways that don't rely on us all being together in person. So this couldn't have really happened otherwise. Um, and without sort of consciously planning it in this way, I realized thinking about the panel today that there's a sort of archaeology of, of, of the book and of my um, sort of trajectory writing it, it was sort of represented in the panel. Um, I, I started working on it in Cambridge where Alex and I were um, had the strange experience of being elected as fellows at Trinity College on the same evening. So I feel like our destinies are sort of strangely intertwined by having gone through this surreal rite of passage. And she was a wonderful colleague to have while I was doing the early work on it. And then to have finished it with, with, with Matt and Lorna as colleagues has been just incredibly fortunate. And then this is the first time I've actually interacted with Ken face to face. And so it's lovely how these things become possible. And um, the fact that his work, as Lorna said, has sort of traced this arc from Spencer in his early writings to toys in the more recent ones made me feel like I was onto something and wasn't just sort of um, sort of spiraling off in some strange direction. What I thought I'd do today is just read a little bit from the book, um, which I thought summed up um, some of what I was trying to do in it. But um, it particularly um, is the bit where I directly discuss the image on the cover, which I've had quite a lot of questions about. And so I thought it might be a nice bit to read, partly because it, it sort of moves from thinking about an early modern object and the ways that we might respond to an early modern object, um, an actual, um, uh, an object that seems to have survived an iconoclastic um, act to, um, towards thinking about um, a much more contemporary um, object or image of an object. Um, and so this is, this is the very end of the chapter in the book, which is called Doll. Um, and, and, and all the chapters in it have single word titles that, it, that, that the chapter then sort of thinks through and around. Um, this chapter starts with a, with a, with a, with a moment um, from Cologne um, in the 16th century where a man was, um, was accused of having snapped the arms from a crucifix and given it to um, the broken object to his children as a toy. And it sort of plays around with the fact that in the 16th century, the, um, the word idol was sometimes spelled I-D-O-L-L. And so it's sort of tempting to see the word doll lodged within it. I just say that because that's sort of relevant for the context. Um, so I'm, so I'm, I'm talking at the start of this about an object. I'm going to have to do the ungainly thing of showing you a picture over the camera. I apologize for this. This might be a bit grainy, but this is, a, this is the object I'll be discussing. It's a, it's a broken um, crucifix, an armless crucifix known as the Fiddleford crucifix. 
because it was discovered in the derelict Great Hall of Fiddleford Manor in Dorset in 1952. It's a modest object, a little more than six inches high. It's light and fragile, constructed of sparsely decorated plaster of Paris, and it would have taken no great effort to break off the arms. And since the substance from which it was made is almost worthless, it could not be melted down or sold for gain. The object probably dates from the late 15th or early 16th century, and there's no way of knowing why it survived or what sort of life it lived in the centuries before it was rediscovered. And although there's no evidence that it became a plaything, when I picture the children in Cologne, whom I just mentioned, being given the damaged crucifix, this is the object that I imagine as their toy. It's an object that captures the ambiguous being of the idol, with two L's, that the object of iconoclastic child's play becomes. As we contemplate this object in the broken form in which it survived, two modes of response suggest themselves, but they oscillate unstably rather than one dominating and deleting the other. The broken meagre crucifix is a forlorn object. It could easily seem faintly ludicrous, a trifle. Its missing arms have abolished its symbolic silhouette, and it now looks like an implement to be handled rather than revered from a distance. Christ's torso and legs look in outline, almost like the handle and blade of a simple toy knife. It's easy to imagine the forms of ordinary play that a, that a defaced and lowly object of this sort might inspire, the range of games into which it might be incorporated as it became a doll. Yet viewed from another perspective, the snapping off of the arms seems less like the sort of casual cruelty that might be directed at an alternately loved and reviled toy, and more like the latest act of violence directed at the body of the suffering Christ himself. The gaunt abdomen with its puncture wounds rendered more meticulously than the rather rudimentary daubing of the beard and mouth, and the resilient downward gaze seemed to withstand the force of and patiently to endure this latest act of iconoclastic brutality. What is one more wound to a body already so lacerated? While iconoclastic actions directed against rejected deities from, from all religions have a paradoxical dimension in that they seem to express express belief in and fear of the very gods that they claim to deride, the strangeness of these acts becomes particularly apparent when they're directed against the already suffering and forlorn Christ. Um, as Bruno Latour asks, how could you destroy an image that is already this much destroyed? Um, and then I, I conclude the chapter then by moving from the Fiddleford Crucifix and leaping into the modern world. In 2001, the Californian artists Shelley and Pamela Jackson launched a hypertext project titled The Doll Games, in which they combined images of their childhood dolls and the objects associated with them, placed in various poses and surrounded by various schemes of text. The tone of their words lurches between the obviously tongue-in-cheek and the seemingly sincere, but the whole project seems calculated to trouble the very distinction between seriousness and play. It also seems uh, designed to anticipate and nullify in advance any attempt at scholarly analysis, since the project is framed with an introduction supposedly, uh, supposedly written by J.F. Bellwether, PhD, uh, which is actually intermittently insightful, but clearly a pastiche written by the sisters themselves. Bellwether cites one of his own publications, which appears in the journal Postmodern Culture, volume MDXIXVIIIIIX. What distinguishes the project for me is its unusually acute grasp that what the Jacksons are investigating is in a sense not their childhood games at all, but, but their impossible adult imagining of their own childhood imaginations. As Pamela Jackson writes, what is a doll game? I'm quoting from her now, what is a doll? What are two kids playing? In the project we are archaeologists, voyeurs, utopians of doll games. Sometimes we're embarrassed. The doll games are inaccessible in a lot of ways, fundamentally baffling no matter how much we scour our memories and pour over the doll box, but it still seems possible as we assemble the fragments that we might be able to recover them somehow or even bring them to some new life. We're curious what that new life would be. Um, and, I, and, I, and I take the sort of non-obviousness of the status of the rediscovered childhood toy as they frame it very, um, very, very seriously. But what's particularly germane to my interests are the miniature character sketches which the sisters provide alongside pictures of many of their dolls they're a great read. I really suggest you go and look at the website. It's just hilarious and interesting. Uh, one, Phyllis, is willowy, gentle, pretty, but perhaps lacking in depth. And another, Harvey, originally a little red riding doll of unknown make, was at once tenderly lyrical and crudely predatory, both a hapless romantic with perfumed hair and a goatish lout. Um, but the figure um, who interested me most is the one who appears on the cover. Um, I think the doll games embody the mixture of triviality and depth, of integrity and dissolution, of humanity and inhumanity, of pleasure and anxiety, that, as the chapter and the whole book, in a way, argue, 
is integral to the object that emerges in iconoclastic child's play, the idol. And they seem to have intuited a version of what I'm arguing when they suspended one of their characters, the splendidly named Josh McBig, who adorns the cover of the book, between the sacred and the risible. Josh, is the, uh, um, Josh they say, is the, doll, is the doll game's archetypal manly man, but he had a vulnerable quality. His legs dangled weakly from his loosely jointed hips and later began to loosen and fall off, as did his hands and even eventually his left foot, making him a source of comedy, especially in the late farces, this is all their words still, but also transforming him in the end into what we can only see as the doll game's sorrowful, suffering Christ. Not so much suspended between the sacred and the ludicrous, perhaps as an embodiment of the sacred, emerge, uh, of the sacred emerging amid the ludicrous, the sacred as ludicrous. Thank you. So that's all I will read. And now I am eager to, to hear from, from others. Um, thank you very much, uh, Joe. Um, what you've just read uh, drew on, on the very um, salient insights from Tausig that you mentioned at the beginning of um, the defacement of objects, sort of creating uh, new forms of um, affect and sacredness rather than dissipating them. Um, if I might ask a question before I ask the others to, I just wanted to ask about gender. Um, you, you, you move in the argument from doll to puppet and you talk about doll as not um, being not a small humanoid that we play with, but um, the, the, the dullness is the inherent, the capacity to be animated. And you link that to the words, the interchangeability of the words for girl and doll in many languages. And then in the next chapter, you go on to puppet. And there it's really not the inherent animation, but the kind of constitutive brokenness and uh, capacity to sort of have violence done to it. And that's just come out in your Josh McBig. And you say in that chapter, if the human were a puppet, we might say she's in, apparently one of, possessed of some agency, uh, the ability to grab the puppet strings. And I was just struck by your use of the feminine pronoun in that sentence about the human generally. And I just wondered, because I think feminists of the 90s might have thought, um, the, the interchangeability of the words doll and girl say something about the um, tendency of, uh, of women to be objectified rather than thinking that it's about the inherent animation. So I just wondered if you could say something about, um, I, I know there are male dolls, but about the fact that we tend to identify girl and doll. Yeah, thank you for that, Lorna. It's a really, really interesting, important question. I think I think I was I tried in the book to engage that there's been some a lot of really good work done on um dolls in various historical and cultural contexts and um the inculcation of 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 gender norms and, and especially the sort of provision of dolls to girls to sort of you know as part of their of of, of as try, uh, you know, a crucial part of this sort of supposedly teleological process towards becoming a sort of adult um, woman. And I suppose, um, and yeah, so, so I, I cite quite a lot of this in the book. There's a particularly good article I remember reading by a classicist called Fanny Dolensky or Dolansky about this in Roman culture, which was hugely informative. Um, but one of the, I suppose one of the things I was, I was struck by doing this work was that the because I suppose a lot of what's survived, a lot of the, the sort of material traces we can reconstruct of the dolls that were actually played with, they're, they're very often um, in one way or another elite objects by their nature. You know, they're things that have been made, constructed, built out of durable materials. Um, and, they're, and, and they're the ones that tend to, to actually more, more closely represent or resemble humans. And so one of the things I was sort of interested in, in questioning throughout the book was how, I mean, you know, I'm sort of interested in that idea of play as a, as a, as a linear, as a part of a sort of linear development of a child, the idea that you can, that, that you know, there's a sort of telos and a, and a smooth and unbroken path towards it. Um, but, um, but in a sense, I, 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 I was interested in these things that were much harder to reconstruct, that had to be partly imagined, but these much more sort of rough and ready objects that sort of passed in and out of the, of the realm of play. And I felt precisely because of their more improvised nature were less suitable in a sense for, linear narratives of development, including those gendered narratives where play is supposed to, you know, playing with the with the female doll is supposed to sort of make the female woman. 
Um, and, and one thing that's and just a final thought on this is that I mean, one thing that's one thing reason I was struck by that is actually going back. So the book starts with this scene from a um, preacher um, called Roger Edgeworth, which which Alex originally helped put me onto, and was became the absolute kind of centre of the book. Um, and one thing that really struck me about it, so that's the thing that actually describes this scene of iconoclastic child's play in the household, is that it seemed, for reasons I don't think I ever fully was able to unpack, but that was struck by, it very deliberately seemed to involve the whole family and to actually have the play being directed, interestingly, across gender lines. It seems to be a father talking to a daughter and a mother talking to a son. And that, again, I, 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 I'm not sure I ever fully just cracked what I wanted to do with that, but it felt interesting to me, at least, that this scene of more improvised open-ended uncertain play um seemed to seem to have a gender dimension that was not perhaps as 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 clear as those sorts of idealized narratives that you're describing um, but thank you it's a really important question thanks very much um, i'd like to invite um matt to um respond thank you thank you very much it's a, it's a pleasure to be here um and thank you to joe for inviting me um uh, last December, my five-year-old daughter, Rosa, turned to me in a swimming pool and, apropos of absolutely nothing, said, uh, Daddy, let's pretend you make inventions, then let's pretend they're useless so I can have them as toys. Uh, later that day, I emailed Joe and asked him whether this is an update or a new twist on iconoclasm and play. Um, and I begin here because I just want to, in expressing my gratitude and admiration for Joe's book, I just want to stress something about the way uh, that the book lived with me after I'd finished reading it. Um, I think in Joe's book, uh, meaning is, is always tied up in some sense with motion. Uh, child's play becomes, among other things, uh, a means of revaluing or devaluing an object um, uh, he, he's very, he encourages, I think, to be alert to the uses and the reuses of playthings and art things. But for me, crucially, um, he really wants us to resist merely functional conceptions of play. Uh, the book, I think, is really uh, wonderfully alive to how, in fact, we might confiscate play through the very act of interpreting it or, or instrumentalizing it. So for me, it's a really questing questioning book um, one of the best things about it for me in fact is the peculiar particular timing of joe's questions just one page 77 uh, is was it any more absurd to try and capture god in the wooden body of a puppet than in the fleshly awkward imperfect body of a human I think the resonance of something like that the way joe constantly in this book sort of gives you a sense of an idea being broached uh, but not necessarily laboured or exhausted is, is one of the is one of the many strengths of the book it's not afraid to give uh, to give us space uh, and to let its reader have thoughts and one thought for me I think that uh, really emerged as an as I think an implication of Joe's work is that whenever we're watching another person at play uh, perhaps especially a child part of what we might be doing is actually relishing the, the privacy of their need to play. In other words, warming to a vision of the activity as an undivulged secret or a mystery, uh, a, a secret perhaps to its participant as well as its observer. Uh, players are always becoming the playthings in some way of their unconscious. They're never wholly in the know about what it is that they're playing at. At one point, Joe draws on, I mean, the book is richly sort of intellectually capacious, but there's one moment where he draws on Walter Benjamin's awareness of adaptive developmental accounts of play, uh, often say as a form of repetition as mimesis, for example. Um, but he also stresses how repetition creates a new kind of strangeness. Uh, and it, it reminded me of there's another bit in Benjamin where he observes that for, for a child, he says, repetition is the soul of play and nothing gives a child greater pleasure than to say, do it again. But then Benjamin adds the following. He says, and in fact, every profound experience longs to be insatiable longs for return and repetition 
until the end of time. When a modern poet says that everyone has a picture for which he would be willing to give the whole world, how many people would not look for it in an old box of toys? I think for me, it's this idea of repetition, in fact, as a kind of incompletion uh, of an experience which it itself longs to be insatiable, uh, of repetition, in fact, as a non-working through of something that strikes me as, as, as particularly suggestive. And it's there, it runs as a kind of subterranean thread in this book. Um, for me, the book uh, really comes together uh, without, as it were, coming together too much. Uh, in, in Joe's superb readings of, of Bruegel's painting of Children at Play, and then the, uh, the dragon in Spencer's Fairy Queen. And I'll just end by glancing here at the latter because of, of time constraints. But I think what Joe's reading allows us to see is that the dragon is, is a complication of the allegory that's been set up via the dragon's very sense of pleasure in its own allegorical function. I thought that was just an amazing moment. Um, it, it, he took, uh, Joe talks about the dragon's doggish delight at the arrival of the night, as though it were saying, you're here at last after quite a wait for both of us. Um, and then on the it's on the last page of the book, I think comes my, my own, my personal favourite set of questions in Joe's book, which I will just read. How does the dragon feel about being a vast malevolent allegory? How was it passing the time as it waited for Red Cross on the sunny hillside before leaping up and practically wagging its vast terrifying tail? Did it get bored? Did it play its own dragon games? Joe uh, then adds, and um, what does it say about me as a reader that I can find myself asking such bizarre questions? Uh, I, I think they're just great questions. Um, I think they're in tune with the book's emphasis throughout on uh, the inscrutability of play, uh, on the value and the threat and the thrill of that inscrutability. Um, in answer to that last question though, I feel sure or almost sure that the dragon really did play its own dragon games. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. I'd like to call on um, Alex Walsham to respond now. Thank you very much. Um, well, it's a particular pleasure to be invited to participate in this discussion of Joe's remarkable book uh, for the reasons that he explained that it, it began its life in Cambridge and it's come to fruition here in Oxford. Um, but I very much recall such stimulating discussions that uh, Joe and I had as he was working on this uh, in its early phases. And I'm completely dazzled by what has emerged. It's a, a work of extraordinary erudition that moves uh, effortlessly um, across the disciplines. And that's filled with um, very penetrating insights about the nexus between play childhood and sacred violence through the ages. He's already alluded to that extraordinary passage from Roger Edgeworth's sermon, uh, which has long intrigued and puzzled me too. And what it opens a window into is a world in the midst of immense and revolutionary change when objects that are hallowed by tradition and preserved in monasteries, float free of their ecclesiastical moorings and end up in the irreverent hands of children. And that domestic scene is an intimate one in which parents and children, as he's already said, collude in a game that denudes religious materiality um, of uh, its power by reducing it to a mere plaything. Now, what Joe's book seems to me to do is to compel us to recognize the fundamental ambivalence of those kinds of transactions. It illuminates them and also at the same time renders them even more strange and unsettling, subversive and generative than they initially seem. It also, uh, and I, I'm drawn to this as a historian, 
uh, it engages with and questions a whole series of inherited paradigms associated with the Reformation. Paradigms of disenchantment, of the alleged antipathy of Protestantism towards play, of what Peter Burke once called the triumph of Lent over Carnival, and of iconoclasm as a midwife to the birth of the category of art. So there's a huge amount that I'd like to discuss and I am going to have to constrain uh, what I say. But so I'm gonna say four broad things that I hope there'll be a little time, uh, Joe, for you to respond to. The first is that I'm really fascinated by the insight that piety and play are not opposites, but dynamically intertwined in both the, the pre-Reformation period and the post-Reformation period. Your observation that the kind of rough and irreverent handling of holy objects was a feature of medieval religion, as well as a mode of repudiating it in the post-Reformation era, is, is really compelling, as is the question that you ask about how truly transformative was it to place them in a child's hand in that context, given their similarity of these actions with uh, the paraliturgical play of the Middle Ages? I'm also, as a bit of an iconoclast myself of these paradigms, drawn to your questioning of uh, these grand narratives that present play as a casualty of Protestantism and of modernity, and your emphasis on the coexistence of those, of those impulses. But I do confess that as a historian, I'm compelled to ask the boring historian's question about change over time. What, if anything, did change as a result of the Reformation? And how significant in particular was Protestantism's profound theological uh, assault on the ontological status of sacred objects? So it's, it's rejection of their capacity to operate as containers and conduits of divine power and grace. And just as an aside, uh, thinking about reflecting on the book, I, I found myself thinking that the word idolatry was uh, more absent or at least less visible than I expected it to be. The second thing I'd like to say is about the phrase that you alluded to in your earlier introduction to it, uh, about the sacred as ludicrous. That really caught my eye. The word ludicrous is another curious word that has a relevant etymological root whose mutations and migrations in meaning uh, seem, I think, to be just as illuminating as toy, uh, puppet, trifle, uh, fetish and doll. It's a word that captures both a sense of jest, but also incredulity. And if you look at the OED, what that reveals is a very interesting drift in its significance from something that pertains to play or sport and is witty or humorous to something that is suited to derisive laughter, uh, is ridiculous and is absurd. So where does that shift fit in your story? One might also say that the word pastime has an interesting migration in meaning too. Uh, it starts as something that describes the elapse and passage of time and it ends up coming to denote the activity of play, a pleasurable hobby, a sport, a recreation itself. So what's the significance of those shifts in, in your story? Thirdly, and much more briefly, uh, I was also perhaps a little surprised that you didn't do more with the idea of play and stage playing, how those two things connect to each other, Ludus and ludicrum, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a common route. And how does that work out in, in the context of, of the story you tell? The final thing I wanted to say was you describe your book uh, as the study of the adult's imagination of the child's imaginative play and the adult's imagination of the child as a cultural process you're rightly cautious about the very possibility of entering the imagination of the playing child, him or herself. The child therefore remains ultimately, as has already been alluded to, elusive in the story. 
And this story is one that explores the adult prism through which such actions then as now were viewed. So are we doomed to be unable to study child's play through uh, uh, the prism? Uh, we're always going to view it through the prism of the adult, uh, whether as the spectator or the orchestrator of that action, or perhaps as the actor looking back on events that happened in an earlier phase of their life. And so what's lost to us as a consequence of that methodological obstacle? So that's where I'm going to finish. Thank you very much, Alex. I'd just like to call on our final panelist, Kenneth Gross. Thank you. Um, thank you. It's really lovely to be here. Um, I'm not sure if I have much to add to what people have said. I was, I was thinking about the, the experience of reading the book. It's, it's very intricately worked out and beautifully organized around single words, but the weaving of theoretical reflection and story and anecdote is very, is part of its pleasure. Um, I was thinking when I, when I, in other occasions, when I've talked to people about puppets or dolls, I always ask people in the audience to say something about their experience of a doll or a puppet. It's almost always something very strange and disturbing and unsettling, sometimes in adulthood, something, sometimes going back to childhood. And one of the things that I, I valued in the book was the time you take over these very fragmentary and elusive anecdotes like the one about the child being given, uh, it was Edgeworth, yes, the, the, the sermon where the child, the, the horror of the family where the child was given the doll to play with or where uh, somebody snaps, uh, breaks a crucifix and gives it for a child to play with. Um, you just let those stories play in your own imagination and you ask questions, you ask about what we didn't know. Um, and there's something in the language, even as in the passage you read from, you know, what life does this broken crucifix live? What life did it live in the centuries when it wasn't known? That's already bringing your own sort of figurative language and storytelling into the analysis. Um, the, uh, and so that, that into those particular anecdotes and stories, which, which sort of resonated outwardly, uh, and your general, uh, the, the recurrent gesture in the book is simply refuse hard and fast distinctions, to refuse the effort to put things, to divide things, to box them, to categorize them, and not in a trivial sort of way. Um, and I, I say trivial part, which is probably the charge word, because the other thing about the book that's very valuable is its continual meditation on what is and isn't trifling what is and isn't important. The, the words of each chapter tend to be words which often apply to childish or silly or irrelevant things, a toy, a puppet, a doll, um, or they're, they're used as terms of disdain and abuse, uh, as, as contempt. Uh, and the wandering between the trifling, the urgent, and the contemptu contemptuous or contemptible is part of it. Um, just as people were talking, I realized that another continual fascination in the book, and it's something you talk about specifically, but it sort of wanders, is that the same powers that you attribute to dolls or idols, um, their opacity, their alienness, their volatility, their, their violence, uh, their scandalousness, their demonic powers, their, their infectiousness, which are things you see as proper to them and things which others attribute to them. All of those adjectives are also applied to the children playing, uh, to the children using those objects. And there's this continual sort of weird crossing between the life of the child and the life of the object that the child plays with and that adults watch and interpret the child playing with. That's part of the energy of the book. Um, if I had only one question, it would be, uh, I'm curious, no, you won't have time to answer this on, on screen, I know. Um, the analysis, the great account of the, the last dragon in book one of the Fairy Queen, um, uh, 
I was thinking about the other last monster in the Fairy Queen proper. Uh, at the end of book six, there's an even more frightening monster who is a monster of iconoclasm, the blatant beast who is like a sort of overgrown bullying child uh, and who is shown breaking into the monasteries and destroying and defiling sacred and holy things. Uh, what's that particular account of the paradoxes of iconoclasm has always haunted me because on the one hand, it's seen as profane, as destructive, as, as doing violence to the sacred. And yet Spencer says the monastery is full of infected, disgusted, properly base forms of religion. Uh, it's both, so the blatant beast is both doing a proper work of unfolding infected sacred work and yet seen as profaning something truly sacred. So anyway, that was all. Thank you. Thank you, um, Kenneth. Thank you, everyone. Joe, I'm so, um, th th the problem with book at lunchtime is that lunchtime is too short to start. And I think there's, there's not a very long time for you to respond, but please respond uh, um, in, I don't know, five minutes or so. <laughs> I'll try and say something just brief in response to each of those. Thank you so much to each of you for those wonderfully um, generous and also thought-provoking and searching remarks. Um, I'll try and be brief and then sort of throw it open for, for questions. But um, so um, just to, I'll, I'll go in the order that you spoke. Thanks. Thank you for your for, for drawing out the strand about repetition. Matt. I think that's really, um, yeah, it's one of those things that I don't, I, I don't very often in the book sort of make it the focus, but it's constantly at stake and something I continue to think about. And it, it, it partly just strikes me that it's not something or perhaps it's something that we're, we're, we're better in academic writing at talking about in the abstract than actually thinking about the experience of. And so in the way that so much about reading a poem is actually about repeat reading and changing encounters with it. And, and, and that's something that tends, that somehow there isn't space for that in, you know, very often in what, in what we sort of think of as a, as a reading. Um, so, um, but it just makes me think also of a wonderful um, book I read in the last few months. This is on the recommendation of Jeff Dolben, who I think was hoping to join the call, though I don't know if he's here, I hope he is, um, called On Repeat, which is a book by a musicologist about, about the experience of repetition, full of amazing stuff, like, but very neuroscientific in interest, like actually what happens to our brain. And the, the bit that stood out for me and made me think back to the book is this amazing psychological experiment she um, writes about, which you can go and do online, which is basically, um, I think she's called Diana Deutsch, the woman who did it. It's, um, it's, a, it's a spoken phrase that I won't say too much about it because you should go and try this up. It's a spoken phrase that, that you, you hear it and then you hear a repetition and another repetition. And for about 85, 90% of people, you suddenly start to hear part of the phrase as music, it sort of turns into music. So it hasn't changed. It's just the experience of it being repeated. Your brain musicalizes it. And it's the most extraordinary thing. I, I did it, you know, once you hear it, you want to play it to everyone. You know, I played it to my son's primary school class, so they could all hear it and they all loved it. And, and so that sense that music, the, 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 the repetition on the one hand can deaden, but repetition can literally make language sort of burst into song, just seem like a sort of wonderful metaphor for, for how we can think about the different things, the, the sort of different things it can do. So as I said, thank you for pulling that out um, very much. Um, Alex, I won't be able to answer all your questions at all. I just want to say one thing, which, because um, I think, I guess what I'd like to focus on is the, is the question about how you then account for change over time. I think that's really important because I definitely am aware of that risk that, that there's a, you know, that, that if you're tempted to start stressing continuity over change, it's, it's, which I think is on the one hand important to do, but you can easily fall into a way of being like, well, it was all terribly complicated. And then you, don't, you haven't really accounted for, for what in fact happened. I, I'm trying to think of a way of answering this that isn't sort of terribly um, sweeping and that I won't regret, but um, I was thinking also about, I, you alluded to this, I think, but the, the way, in one, thing, one of the things about this topic that interests me is the way in which sort of developmental narratives of human life, the move from childhood to adulthood, has often been used to think about historical change, the sort of move from a childhood of civilization, whether that's sort of idealized or, or, or sort of derogated. And, and, and I wondered if, as I was thinking about your question, I wondered if perhaps what I say, I mean, you know, there clearly are, there clearly are huge changes un underfoot in, in the Reformation to do with the categories of materiality and the way in which um, you can affectively relate to that materiality or not. So I, so I, I wouldn't deny that there is a sort of, um, that there is, that, 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 it, that there is probably overall less of an, you know, if it is helpful to think of these terms, you know, less of an, an, of an emphasis on these forms of affectively charged material engagement as a basis for, for piety. 
but what I what I think interests me is that a bit like narratives of of human development, what I understand as a as a as a process that is a, that is that yes leads to a change of emphasis, but that like how, you know what am I trying to say? We're tempted when we think about human development to want to see it as a linear progressive process in which things get left behind and moved on and, and you know forgotten the next stage. Actually, we're constantly living with the remnants of things that we haven't fully overcome but tell ourselves that we have. And I'd say something similar about the Reformation. It's, it's a process, it's a huge change of emphasis which people are trying to convince themselves and others is an absolute change of substance. So, so there, there, so there is change, but there's a, but there's, but there's change that has to deny the forms of, or is often tempted to deny the forms of underlying continuity that actually exist. And so that's where, for me, it's it, the, these works that get us to see what it's like to live with that ambivalence of this, of this imperfect or incomplete disavowal, or convince yourself that something's been fully overcome that hasn't. That, that for me is where the interest lies. So there is still there, I think, an acknowledgement of, of, um, of change. Um, but the change that's happening and the change that's supposed to be happening are not necessarily the same, the same. And it's that gap that interests me and that this phenomenon takes us to. But I think it's a really, I don't think that's a, that's a, my final answer, as it were. I will continue to think, but it's, um, but thank you for the questions. Um, and Ken, I'll be very, I'll be very brief. Thank you for, for asking me about Spencer. I mean, yeah, The Blazing Beast is wonderful. And, and, um, and I suppose, uh, for those who haven't read the fairy queen i mean it's a you know it's a, it's a bit to read it's completely completely wild at the end of this poem at this sort of i mean the i guess what i would say is that it, it's it does seem important to me that, that the that the poem in its sixth book form ends its sixth book ends with a monster who is threatening in all the ways that you've described and is not finally contained right i mean it seems very important that that the attempt to bind and restrict it fails and and the poem ends with it still sort of on the loose and so i think i i, I guess I probably wasn't consciously doing this, but I think in a way, in a way that does sort of, I've, that seems to me to sort of retrospectively authorise my interest in the dragon, that, that, that Spencer wants us to think of these monsters as things that don't get dealt with, um, that don't, you know, they're not, you know, that, that, that sort of killing something and going on to the next adventure doesn't mean you've solved the problem that it represents. And so it's a little bit linked to my answer to Alex, actually, that I think it's about a rhetoric of overcoming and leaving behind versus, um, uh, 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 then a sort of continued need to reckon with what lingers and what doesn't get worked through. Thank you. Um, uh, that, thank you, Joe. I mean, I think we're sort of about, the t if, if that's okay, we're sort of about the time now to welcome Wes back to chair um, questions from the wider audience. Um, if people could uh, put uh, questions into the Q&A um, box, that would be great. Um, Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, uh, we have one already from Jeff Dolvin, who says, um, Matt raised repetition. Joe, I know you're interested in rhythm. Iconoclasm is surely partly a breaking of rhythm, lost regularities of liturgy and so on. So is there a rhythm to play? Or I guess to paraphrase him, is, is play always in some sense disruptive? Uh, yeah, I, I think, um, yes, I, I mean, I think, I think I've found that I think I, you can sort of see my interest in rhythm in my Morris works beginning to emerge in this. I think of this as I look back at the book, it's funny to sort of find yourself being interested in things you don't sort of fully remember. Mm -hmm. having I think, I think there is, but I think, um, the interest to me in rhythm is precisely that it, that it, um, it encapsulates a range of more or less regular and predictable forms. Um, you, there, there has to be, I suppose, rhythm to be recognisable as rhythm has to be somewhere within um, a spectrum of total difference at one end and total sameness at the end, um, at, at the other. Um, so I think, I think, yes, I think play for me is a way of thinking about. Um, uh, the rhythms of of experience, in insofar as um, it's it, it's a, it seems to sort of embody it, it, it seems to sort of embody the different possibilities of what rhythm can be. There's always the sort of um, either the, the the temptation or the nightmare to imagine a form of play which is kind of um, always always and ever the same, um, but it also contains the possibility of rhythms as things that change and vary. Um, and have to vary to keep us interested and, and, and for their own reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it, for me, is a useful way of thinking about the possibilities that, pl that play can contain 
um, rather than there being a sort of single defining rhythm. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, does anybody else want to come in there? If not, I have another question, um, which is actually one of my own, if I may put one in. Um, and that's is listening to you all variously speak. I had a sort of meta question, which comes out of your, your last response, Joe, which is about thinking of the Reformation as a change of emphasis, um, which some people think of as a change of substance. And I wanted to sort of turn that back on the ways in which you work with literature. Um, in other words, is the kind of work that you're doing affecting a kind of change of substance of the literary experience through this drawing attention to things beyond it, should we say? Um, or would you see this more as a kind of change of emphasis um, where all the other stuff still lingers? I'm just I'm really intrigued by this kind of lingering that's going on uh, in, in your discussion. Are you talking about methodology principally? I am talking about methodology, effectively. How, how does your kind of bringing of a whole range of different methodological um, uh, insights and, and procedures change the actual, the toy, the doll, the, the, uh, the fetish that is the text? Yeah, thank you. That's a really good question. And, um, and, and I, again, other panelists, please do jump in at any point. I don't want to just just talk talk too much myself, but um, it, it's interesting. I mean, the the the, um, the first detailed review that the book got by Rachel Eisendrath, who's who I'm going to be talking about the book with later in the term, um, was sort of picked up on the, what she described as a sort of theoretical kind of bricolage in the book, and, and was mm -hmm. and was slightly sort of unsure about that as a as a move, which I which I can understand. You know, I thought it was very interesting criticism um, that it felt like a bit of a sort of theoretical free for all in some way, and. And, and and I'm sort of okay with that up to a point. Mm -hmm. I think I think for me, um, I I don't talk about this directly in the book, but it felt it was it was partly interesting to engage with theories of play because so many because it actually turned out to be a sort of common ground between lots of theoretical approaches, or, or an interesting not not a common ground in terms of what they said, but lots of them t t tended to either make use of or actually argue for a version of play as a as a model for critical practice or as actually something being that was up for discussion. And so I felt like, in a way, in the book, it, it sort of freed me up. I, I, I think I just sort of, I did allow myself to kind of avail myself of certain things. But, but for example, it goes back a little bit to, to Ken's comment as well, actually, that I felt, for example, that by starting this, the, the book with this Roger Edgeworth anecdote and with this particular scene from, um, from uh, a sermon, that it felt kind of in, sort of indebted in some larger way to the sort of new historicist tactic of, the arresting opening anecdote that was going to be kind of unfolded like a present or like a past the parcel with kind of many layers with presents on every layer. Yeah. Um, but I was then interested to sort of not to, to sort of stay with with it and sort of not move on to the to, to, to the real event being say the reading of, of Spencer. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I felt like um, it, it's obviously always tempting to then sort of present what I'm doing as some kind of critical play. But again, I was I was sort of finding that everyone was doing that, but never but not really. Articulating the 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 version of play they were assuming in the process, so um, uh, so I, so it felt like at times like I was. But what was kind of nice about doing that was it felt like there's a temptation to sort of argue against a critical position, whereas I felt like I was actually able to take certain things like the anecdote and actually do and and try and change it into something and try and affect transformation more in the way you're describing rather than just brushing things off as we're sometimes inclined to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think Matthew's got something to say here on, on that. Uh, yeah, just well, partly just uh, I'm I was a fan of the bricolage. <laughs> partly, um, I, there's a moment in your book where I think you talk about what one thing that d feels weirdly ahistorical must be that all parents have said to all children throughout the ages, "Play nicely," and I like the fact that your book doesn't play nicely. So, but the question does relate to method. I had a question that um, it relates to this question about the way in which play might linger when one thought one had surmounted it when one has become allegedly mature uh, the book's general skepticism about certain models of development um and it perhaps relates to the thing you talked about when you were saying about the the reader or the adult as a voyeur of doll games and the book's interest in the adult's imagination of the child there's i got a sense as i was reading and maybe you do make this explicit at points was is the sense that the child is the adult's plaything, and that 
versions of actual uh, interpretation before art, I felt this very much in the in your interpretation of the Bruegel was uh, a form of play, uh, as though as though the book was surreptitiously asking, "How do you know when you're not playing?" Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, uh, and and I, I can see the danger of just simply saying that you don't. There's nothing more anodyne than I'm a playful critic or whatever, but just an actual thought about how um, adults themselves in in interpreting art objects are joining in with play when they think they might not be. Thanks, well, that's great. And it speaks to the methodological point. I mean, I, I, exactly as you say, the kind of risk of, it's much more interesting to me. Thank you for putting it in that way. That really helps me make clear something I've, I don't think I've fully thought through, but exactly that in a way, the minute you say I'm a playful critic, you are again, implicitly assuming a certain model of play that you know and are fully able to carry out only in the conscious ways that you intend to and want to. Whereas the sense that, which I try, I sort of bring through that more, I think in the book in relation to artworks or literary works, that we might be playing with them without realizing what that is. But that as a sort of broader thought, you know, am I, am I playing without realizing is a really, that's, that's, that's wonderful, thank you. If I could um, come in here, I'm aware that we're nearly up to two o'clock, but let's carry on for a little while longer if we can. Um, I know that Alex in particular needs to go off to, we've saved her from some of a committee meeting, but she has to go off to another one. Um, but um, there are some more questions. So if, if people are happy to carry on for five, 10 more minutes, then, then let's do so. Um, but I should um, thank Alex for being here um, before she has to run off. Um, and uh, anyway, so you, you, can, you can pop in, but there's a question here. I'm gonna take the second one first, where, which follows on from the impulses of Alex, in fact, where the, the toys we've been talking about are material dolls, sometimes fantastical and so on. What about those instances where people become toys, where humans are mocked, played with in a trifling way? And the example they're given is Malvolio, um, who should represent a kind of Puritan iconoclasm, but is actually turned into a toy for his puritanism and for his kind of reformation identity. Um, uh, so again, it's, it's asking the question about the inhuman and the human, the, the borderline there, um, as well as the sort of agency question that, that Alex um, evoked. I want to, have you got something to think about that or and you want to add to that? Thank you, yeah, that's really, and again, I think this you know, does sort of pick up on things that both Alex and Ken said in different ways. Alex's question about stage play feels germane here and Ken's um, point about the sort of um, the sort of uncertainty about where uh, where the subject ends and the object begins. Um, it is interesting to think about Marvolio as a puppet. I'd never, it makes me think of the garter, the cross mm. gartering as some sort of stringing, stringing mm. up him or something. Mm. Um, and, um, and, and and especially because, as I talk about a bit in the book, and as Ken has, has written about as well, because puppet because puppetry in particular is such a, a tempting metaphor for the way in which we might be controlled by higher forces above us, all the way back to to, to Plato and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess what I would say is, yeah, I, I think I probably would fall back on the sense that part of what, part of what play, I think part of what play does. And, and it was, and it, and I know I've spoken to Matt about this before because I think he had some similar, he was facing similar issues in his work on Wordsworth. It's a great challenge to write about play without idealizing it. And one of the things I wanted, and also sentimentalizing it, and that was a, a risk I was constantly aware of. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. Um, that was a risk I was sort of constantly trying to be aware of. And um, and so this, um, the, the, the sense that I think came through in all the remarks about my interest in the book in a kind of, in play as a space of quite, quite genuine and, and potentially violent uncertainty um, means that um, means you know that that the, it is a space for where subjects and objects get confused it's also a space where caring for something and and being cruel and violent to something kind of gets kind of gets confused and and so it's I think it's actually quite important to keep that sense of it as a as a space of, of potential cruelty and 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 and, and to to, to, to think about what's done to Malvolio, but to think of it as still belonging in the realm of play, mm -hmm. I think really is really sort of ethically important for that reason. Mm -hmm. So Alex, I thought you were saying goodbye, but I realized maybe you were putting a hand up to speak. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Um, I was actually wanting to say something. Sorry, sorry. That was right. Please yeah, do. Um, and that was uh, that actually just, I was just very quickly looking at your index and uh, checking that one really fascinating uh, set piece on this whole issue is Ben Johnson's Bartholomew Fair. 
zeal of the land busy is exactly made into the puppets that he denounces and um that you know there's another whole story there behind that that uh, could be worth uh thinking about yeah thank you Alex. No, that's a really good point and and i don't have a good answer to that question about stage play i mean i my in my my first book the one about touch i sort of say at one point i'm not going to write about drama <laughs> and I, just, I don't know why i keep doing this i keep i love drama and i love teaching drama and thinking about drama but i keep sort of leaving it out of, because it just feels like it's such a complicated thing but i think um but yeah the johnson example is absolutely fantastic and i guess also with the puppets partly because of having the example of you know because ken does so much on it in his book on on the sort of the broader in a way my puppet chapter is not that much about sort of literal puppets it's sort of asking what we how we encounter religious objects in the context of these of these interests in puppetry but 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 yeah but the johnson and johnson thinks about the gender and sexuality of puppets in such interesting ways and so on so there's lots to say there but um thank you for that reminder the one thing i thought about malvolio is that the people playing with malvolio end up realizing that their play gets out of hand mm -hmm. and they have to that they they can't control the response and that other manipulators like the fool are playing games that aren't the games of uh, Sir Toby Belch and Mariah. So that there are multiple attempts to control him, none of which can quite exhaust the cost of the play. Um, so they also yeah. become, if I may, they also become aware of their own capacity for cruelty. I think yes, by, by seeing other people play with Malvolio. So, I mean, it's a sort of, I think that's part of what's happening in, in that moment, if, if I'm understanding you right. Yeah, no, no, the cruelty, this is, I, I remember something, I met years ago, a young German puppeteer who said, she really never knew how to use her puppets until she destroyed them and remade them. Mm -hmm. um, and that there was something very kind of unsettling and beautiful about that. Mm -hmm. We have um, a couple more questions. Um, one is um, goes from Gordon Teske. If you, I think you can see the questions um, as as we're going along, and that's about again the choice. He evokes the 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 Walter Benjamin um, uh, leaving the taxi filled with toys, um, and it's a more general question: Are the toys happy or sad? Um, do you have a a response to that, Joe? Uh, thank you, Gordon. Um, are his toys happy or sad? I think. Yeah. I think I think I'm going to say uh, beyond happiness and sadness. I don't I don't I, I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. But I basically think of um, I do mention him briefly in the in the book. But it makes me think of Kafka's Kafka's Odredek, mm -hmm. this kind of mm. curious, spindly, barely mm -hmm. human figure, um, which which um, which uh, where again it feels like it goes a little, little bit back to my original answer to Lorna's question, which is that the objects that interested me in this book are the ones to whom it seems very strange to even try and attribute an emotional range. I mean, but but it nonetheless happens, right? I mean, yep. it's kind of, it's the sort of, um, the sort of um, exorbitance of that, of that attempt in the face of something that's so meagre and so, uh, and, 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 and provides so few sort of hooks or affordances for us to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's a, that's a slight dodge of Gordon's question, but it's, but it's the best I can do. <laughs> Well, it raised the, I mean, through Audre Dijk, you're raising the question of, of, of in a sense, a, assigning agency or humanity or um, kind of affect to go right back to where Lorna started to something that may or may not be just, as it were, just an object. And in a way, that's what's in the last question that we have from uh, those present, which is to do with um, personification, depersonification, and desymbolization um, as a kind of essential part of iconoclasm. I'll give you a moment to read it. Um, uh, I'm obviously excited because it's about monsters, it's about it's about monsters but um, okay. goodbye Alex, thank you. Goodbye, thank you. Thank you so much Alex. Um, yeah, infantilizing the category of the monstrous um, and how things that intended to be terrible come to seem lovable. Interesting. I think if this relates to the. Is this relating perhaps to the dragon? So that yeah, the wat the dog yeah. dog doggy, <laughs> the doggy dragon. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I think also that um, I, I again I'm sorry I can't I, I think a lot of this got cut from the book, but I had a bit more sort of historical detail on 
on dragons in in Spencer's England that I think some of which some of which may have stayed in but but I kept coming across these sorts of there, there are very funny things about the way in which for example dragons well you know when all the sort of St George um uh, pageants and things are getting abolished what often happens is St George goes quite early but the dragon actually hangs around for several decades mm -hmm. uh, this is great I think the one in Norwich who's called Old Snap would kind of it, there's some description that I just love that somehow comes to mind I haven't thought about this for ages but reading this question I imagine this guy in a dragon costume in in late 16th century Norwich sort of sitting on a stone outside the cathedral sort of waiting for everyone else to come out and, and play with him again um, and so there is there is something interesting about the kind of um the, the sort of rendering lovable of the of, of, of the seemingly terrible what it's it's an interesting question it also it raises the bigger question of how how we read fear historically right kind of and not fear in the grand in the in the sort of grand you know pity and fear sense but sort of being spooked by things yeah um and, and, it, and it, i guess it takes back a little bit of my mind to sort of um you know some of Keith Thomas's work on magic and that kind of thing and just and just the sort of one of the challenges of that always being about what about trying to understand a sort of routine mindset in which there might be these kind of superhuman forces kind of at play in the world in certain ways and and and, and again I, I think when I was first studying literature from this period I was you know I read lots of things that sort of encouraged me to think about the English the English literary world in terms of things like despair you know Calvinist despair as manifested you know as Spencer writes about done and blah blah, blah. but actually um I wonder about this sort of lower level of just things being a bit a bit creepy and a bit and a bit canny and a bit and, and sort of perhaps lovable as well and something about the question sort of takes us into that again it sort of goes back to, to, to Ken's comments on on my use of my imagination in the book but a sort of attempt to inhabit these these sorts of affective smaller affective worlds that are that are sort of harder to access but perhaps um to me at least seem to sort of matter all the more for that reason yeah thank you um I think we ought to draw things to a close. Um, there is, as Lorna said right at the beginning, there's never enough time for these really. But nonetheless, um, we've we've managed to um, uh, discuss a, a pretty wide range of exciting stuff um, in the book. And I'd like to thank one last time, uh, Joe and also Lorna and the other brilliant interlocutors today who've given us at least a taste of what's going on in this book and uh, urge everybody to go and reread it and repeat reading it and put it on repeat. Um, uh, thank you all for coming and thank you for your questions um, as well. Um, uh, all that remains for me to do is to uh, say, please do come back uh, next, next week, same time for our next book at lunchtime event, which is Commemorative Modernisms, Women Writers, Death and the First World War, written by Alice Kelly. Check the Torch website to register for next week's event if you'd like to come. Thank you all again one last time and goodbye.